meet the motherboard. Five warrior moms, 12 kids, and that includes two sets of twins. And a whole lot of opinions. Welcome to the motherboard. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Subramaniam, and I have Taylor Ponce with me tonight. Hey, Taylor. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. So today on the motherboard, we're talking a little bit about mediation and negotiations, tactics and strategies, and we are delighted to bring on Matthew Jordan of Jordan ADR as our guest today. Now, Matt graduated from the College of Charleston with a degree in business and communication. He studied law at Cumberland School of Law at Samford University, and he started out as an assistant district attorney in Athens, Georgia, before moving into workers' compensation defense. He then switched sides and has been representing claimants for several years. Three years ago, Matt opened his own firm, the law offices of Matthew C. Jordan, and shortly after, he founded Jordan ADR, a statewide mediation practice, of which I'm a member. So Matt is registered as a civil mediator and arbitrator, and he serves as a judge in the municipal court of Athens-Clark County. And if that were not enough, he and his wife, Catherine, who's also an attorney, both raise rescue dogs, which I think puts him in the upper echelon of good people. So, Matt, we're welcome to the motherboard. We're really glad to have you on today. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, the reason we wanted to have you on is because we wanted to talk about mediations, negotiations, strategies, tactics, what we could do better, um, what the parties could do better. And we figured you were you were an awesome person to have on for this. Um, as uh, some of our listeners may know, Taylor and I are also both mediators. And as I mentioned earlier, I mediate with you. Mm-hmm. I thought I would start by talking about something that I think our, our listeners would be curious about. Um, negotiations are basically considered an art form. And, you know, we can use them in everything from settling a case to buying a car um, to, in my case, you know, negotiating with my five-year-old who wants a popsicle at nine o'clock at night. Um, these are skills that we all need in some form and in some part of our life. So as a mediator yourself, what are some of the attributes or tactics of successful parties in mediation that you have seen? And what are some of the tactics that you've found don't really work well and we should probably be avoiding? So first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I listen. I enjoy the place, the podcast. It's awesome. Um, I think that the first thing you have to do is listen. You got to be a good listener, period. Uh, people forget that. They do more talking in this society and this world and listening. And I think that's a mistake. So the good mediations that we have, I think, start with good listening. That's important. Um, and I mean, do you think that that would be useful, especially if you're a party, um, not just the mediator? No, 100 percent. Yeah, I think that being heard and making someone under, you know, feel understood is really an important part of the process. Um, it's not always easy because you don't necessarily want to understand the other side. You don't necessarily want them to understand you. You just want to be angry. And I get that. Um, but I think if we can push through that, then helping someone feel heard and understood certainly benefits everyone. I think it brings up the other topic and other point in mediation that we see so frequently is that sometimes there are really relevant facts that you don't know. And so as a party to that mediation, it's important to listen to your mediator. It's important to listen to other to the other party. It's important to listen to your client. And as the mediator, you have to acknowledge and notice that sometimes the parties don't know the same facts, right? Like sometimes that has to be conveyed or in, you know, in the case of workers comp, which is the only thing that I have the experience in. So that's what I know is that sometimes they know the same facts, but they see them differently. And so, I mean, I think you could say that about any lawyer on, on the opposite side of, of the V is that it's oftentimes the same exact facts that are just construed differently. So I guess that would go towards the listening component. It also brings up a question for me, and this is, as a, as a defense attorney, this is one of my biggest pet peeves, and the two of you have both practiced in workers' comp, so you, you've experienced it, but I'm sure it applies to other types of cases, but I cannot stand a super high demand. 
Now, I'm not asking for a I'm not asking for a demand that's that's close to the target settlement range. But when I get demands that are five, six times my worst case scenario, it's so frustrating. It is so counterproductive. My clients essentially ignore it. It doesn't help me get authority. If if anything, it just hurts. It hurts my chances of getting authority. And so. You know, I, I'd like to know what your perspective is on that, especially, Matt, with your experience as a claimant's attorney. Why, why is that the practice? I so much more respect a claimant's attorney who says, here's my demand. Here's how I got there. I realize it's my, you know, it's this scenario if this happens, and that's why it's my demand. But I've got some kind of justification for it. It's not a super arbitrary number. I mean, there's claimants firms that'll go unnamed that that literally it's the same demand for every case for a back injury with three surgeries to like an ankle sprain it's like always the same number in it it's just very frustrating as a defense attorney and even as a mediator i'm frustrated when i see that because i want to say to the claimants attorney this isn't helping but you can't make them look bad yeah (laughs) At the same time, it's like, you know, I don't want to challenge. I'm not trying to teach them how to do their job or tell them how to do sure. their job. But like, what's the benefit there? Why are people doing that? And do you think that it is it as annoying to you as a mediator as it is to me as a defense term? Yeah. And, and for our listeners at home, there was a pause there because I held up a sticky note with the <laughs> name on it that I know both of these mediators will agree with, even though they're too kind. And I'm too scared to mention this person's name. Um Yes, yes. I have strong opinions here, Taylor, because when you send a high demand without speaking to your client about it, what you're doing is you're setting expectations inappropriately. And then I, as the neutral or you two, have to come in and help the client understand why the demand is not in the ballpark. And I can't tell you how many times I've had they've come up this much, but we've come down so much more. And it's like, you know, their money is real. Your money is aspirational at best, um, you know, fake. Uh, and and yeah, uh, you have to start somewhere. And I get that. But I have I spend a lot of time helping folks understand why the numbers their attorney has put forward are not appropriate. So how uh, do you do that without yeah. undercutting the you know, without undercutting the credibility of the attorney? Because you also want the claimant to trust their attorney so that at the end, they can hopefully make a good decision. How do you, what are your tactics for doing that without making the attorney look like, a, you know, that they're giving bad advice? Yeah. You know, when, so you know, I, when they're giving bad advice. You know, my, my first rule uh, of mediation is never attack your attorneys. You know, I always protect my attorneys no matter what. Um, I say, I know you guys had to start that high to get them onto the table. And I appreciate where you're coming from with the, you know, the doom and gloom. And I know they think it's sunshine and lollipops, but it's neither one of those things. And you guys got to get realistic here within the confines of what we've got. You know, uh, so-and-so cares about you. Um, It's hard for them sometimes to separate. That's not untrue. It is true for me that sometimes I have a hard time separating from my client where I want something for them when I'm the advocate that sometimes I need a neutral to say like, okay, well, that's cool. I know you care about this person and you want the best for them, but let's circle back to workers comp and you know that X dollars is not appropriate or whatever. Right. I found that in my experience, one of the tactics that I've used is, um, you know, while, while the numbers your attorney has discussed with you might be within the realm of what your claims value might be, should it not settle, should it play out? However, that valuation is different than the number that the insurance company is willing to pay to settle the case today and to assume the risk that something doesn't happen to you tomorrow and your your case is over. Right. Like they're they're assuming some risk by paying it all up front today. And I just try to explain like those are two different numbers, even though the number that your attorney has explained to you could potentially be what you might receive or the total amount that's paid, because obviously that's accounting for money that's paid to the doctor's office versus in their pocket. But it's just frustrating as a mediator and a defense attorney, because even if the claimant's attorney says they're never going to pay this, but this is the number. I find that it's very hard once you hear that number to get it out of your head. 
Yeah, you can't unring that bell very easily. Um, But but you've actually led in very naturally into the next thing that I I wanted to go into, which kind of builds on this, so you can keep talking about it. Um, Which is that you know we we both we all see both sides do things that sometimes we wonder, well, why are they choosing to do that? Um, Or that's maybe really not going to advance their case as much as they think it will. You know, like that's not the flex you think it is. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the one of the things that I've always noticed is when when people make you know very grandiose gestures, but they don't have anything to back it up, or they're otherwise unprepared. Um, it could be anything from saying, "Well, you know, we we're going to send this person back to work," but there's absolutely nothing. No, no evidence showing that they've done any of the work to make that a real threat. Or it turns out maybe the attorney doesn't know the case as well as they should, and they're unprepared to really discuss what happened, um, you know, medically or what might happen in the future. And I feel like those things, they tend to bog down a mediation and slow it down and, and sometimes send the wrong message to the other side. What, what have you all noticed? So I'm sometimes asked to speak at things as a claimant's lawyer. Like, I, I don't want to spill all our secrets, but like, you know, I've spoken to rooms. Spill them, Matt. Spill them. I've, I've spoken to rooms full of uh, employers and TPAs and nurse case managers about the things that we see and why people hire us and, you know, why we do what we do. You know, sending a high demand, to go back to that for a minute, is it's a defense mechanism for a claimant's lawyer, you know. If you don't, if you send a demand that's sort of cut to the bone or doesn't satisfy your client, guess who's not going to be your client? Mm-hmm. So sometimes yeah. I think it's it's very tempting for a, a claimant's lawyer to do that. And I, you know, I've mediated a case very recently for a client of mine who um, said, "Okay, I appreciate that analysis of the case. Uh, double that, and, and we'll be good." And when the case settled in the range that I knew that it would from the beginning, I was very happy for her, but it took the process. She needed to hear the process, even though I or needed to go through the process, even though I had given her the analysis of the case that I thought was appropriate. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing. But, you know, preparation is key in mediation. And I think it's tempting to just say, well, this doesn't matter there's no judge here. There's no court reporter. So I'm going to wing it. And people know you don't need, you know, lawyers like to think of themselves as much more intuitive, but people are people and they know when something's not going the way it should. And the one thing that I always try to do in every single mediation is be consistent, um, be positive, be moving forward so that the claimant, the employer rep, you know, this is a good, solid experience for them every single time, no matter what. You know, I don't want and I don't want my client when it's me as the advocate to think Matt doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, so or doesn't know my case. I, that would embarrass me. So how do you feel about openings? I know as a defense attorney, I usually say to the claimant's attorney, look, I don't need an opening. If you want it for your client, I'm happy to participate in it. Sometimes it's um, the claimant just needing their day in court, so to speak. The mediation is their day in court. Um, And so sometimes they request it. I usually just like to cut to the chase and say to the mediator, go ahead and start with the claimant, you know, um, I don't need an opening if the claim attorney doesn't need it. But if I don't have an opening um, as a defense attorney or as a mediator, I will ask the defense attorney to come over into the other room and just say hi, especially if there hasn't been a deposition, depending on where they are in the case. Um, if they haven't ever met before, I always like to go in and introduce myself. I have always felt like. You know, people are scared of lawyers and they all think that we're big and bad. And a lot of us are or maybe we're not, but we can be when needed. But generally speaking, I'm of the philosophy, you know, what is it? You, you catch more bees with honey, um, whatever the saying is. I think it's flies, but that flies. Works. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like nine o'clock at night. It's nine o'clock at night. <laughs> you catch more flies with honey. And I 
I always feel like if I go in, I give the claimant a little compliment. Oh, I like your shirt, whatever it is. It humanizes um, you. It humanizes me and makes them like take a deep breath, you know, and then I can go in into my room with the meteor and be like, look at this surveillance. I have this person's a fraud, whatever I need to do. But I, I feel like I at least set the tone with the claimant if I'm not going to do an opening. And I usually ask the defense attorney to do that as a mediator. What is your experience with openings, maybe in a non-workers comp setting? Um, you know, maybe it might be different, but what's your experience been with that? Helpful yes. or a waste of time? No. So I, I'm, I'm in the uh, very helpful category. Um, most folks in comp don't do openings anymore. Uh, it's just fallen out of favor. I think that's okay, okay to a certain extent. I don't like when uh, people don't have anything to say because then it feels like I don't really care. This is a waste right. of time, whatever. If, as a defense lawyer, if all you really have to say is, you know, Mr. or Ms. Smith, I'm really sorry you got hurt. You know, we have some problems with some of the issues in the case. Obviously, you know, you know that or we wouldn't be here, but nobody's here to dispute the fact that you got hurt or that you have this claim. And, you know, we're hoping that we can do something about it today. And thank you for taking time. That's 20 seconds of something that will buy you a lot with any person, with any human being. Uh, yeah, if it's a compensable claim, just saying the sentence, I'm sorry you got hurt. That goes a long way. A long way. A long way. Yeah. And, and Matt, I mean, you and I have had this experience when we were on opposite sides of the same case um, where, you know, we, we met in advance and you said, hey, I really think we need an opening because I think this process is going to be, you know, healing for my client to go through. And I, I just think that if, if the attorneys can talk to each other and arrange that ahead of time, mm-hmm. I mean, so much misunderstanding can can sometimes be put to rest just by being in the same room and laying eyes on the other person and realizing, okay, they're here and they're sincere about getting it done today. The other thing I've seen that I've asked when I'm the mediator, I'll ask the defense attorney, was this person a good employee? And I'll say, say, say the sentence to me, they were a good employee so that I can go over and say, the defense attorney said you were a good employee. Like I will literally prompt them. So that I'm not lying. So that I say they said that. And, you know, if you've got a guy who has a compensable injury, compensable or not, if he's worked at a company for 30 years and he hasn't had any disciplinary issues, whether or not you dispute whether he has a compensable claim or not, he wants the acknowledgement that he's worked somewhere for yeah. 30 years. I just that's, feel like that's, that's not the battle. Yeah, it yeah, is. statement can be very effective if used the right way. I've been in mediations where... Uh, the right tone was set by the defense or claimant's attorney, depending on what case, what side of the case I was on, you know, when I was, you know, acting as an advocate in the case. And they, they set the tone for success, you know, uh, to close the case. I think it depends on what your goal is, too. And I've also had people get in my client's face. Um, I can a specific example with a lawyer you guys know who got in my client's face at a mediation and, after the first move, we said, "Okay, have a nice day." Yeah, we're done. Yeah. So, so we're we're talking about you know harmonious issues and how how to make nice at the beginning. But the fact is, not every mediation goes that smoothly, and sometimes um, it can feel a little bit like the set of Jerry Springer. Um, have you ever had a situation where there's been a major disagreement within a party? Uh, maybe a claimant bringing a family member with them and they've disagreed about the direction they want to take it. Or maybe it's been the defense attorney and their client completely at odds about how how they feel the case should be valued. Have you ever had that happen? I personally have not had that happen. Um, I try if I know there's going to be someone involved who is not a party. I tried ahead of time to find out if this person will be a, a help, helpful presence or a hindrance. Um mm-hmm. And you have to remember, as neutrals, we have the right to exclude people, you know. Um, You know, now that you mention it, I did have that come up one time where someone's spouse was a problem. And I told the claimant and the claimant's lawyer that either I was leaving or she was leaving. Oh, okay. And she left. All right. Yeah. And we got the case settled. So that did happen one time. Uh, and that's how I handle it. I will say this, y'all. I think the fact that I sit in municipal court, I am in a place where I don't have to ask permission and I'm not building consensus helps me keep order. 
Uh, and I don't ask a lot. I, I sort of tell people what's going to happen more than I ask. And I think people appreciate that. I mean, I try to run it like a courtroom and I've never had anything get totally out of hand. That was an in-person one. The other side had no idea that ever happened. Uh, I just got tired of unrealistic expectations and what I clearly thought was a real barrier to resolution, particularly when it appeared that the injured worker wanted to continue talking in a productive way. Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine if the peanut gallery is causing a problem, the claimant feels it too. 100%. Well, I, I know of at least one story of, of a mediator that we all know who left the room to talk to the other side. And when he came back, he found the claimant cowering in a corner and the claimant's wife holding a chair over him, ready to ready to hit him with it because she did not like uh, the numbers that were that he was ready to agree to. So uh, I was just curious if anything like that had ever happened in any of your. Yeah, I think that happens a lot in domestic mediations, which I'm blissfully not uh, trained to handle, um, you know, a plug for our. Uh, our fellow Jordan ADR neutral, Andrew Roper, uh, that is a lot of what Andrew does. It, and, it's a whole other level of training. And he, that's right, yeah. for good reason. And he has stories that, you know, you would not believe about things that happen, particularly in his neck of the woods up in Cedartown, Georgia, <laughs> um, that, are, that, that, are, that are quite interesting. So that's another podcast altogether, y'all. <laughs> that, you know? We'll, we'll have you back for that one. We'll have Andrew on for, for yeah. that as well. But, yeah. but that does bring up another good point, which is, you know, how do you know when it's time to walk away and call it quits? Um, sometimes you hit a wall, but how do you know if you're going to get over that wall or not? Man, that's a tough question. What do you all think? You know, I always say to the claimant, this is voluntary. You have the right to walk away. But so does the person with the pocketbook. And, you know, nine and a half times out of 10, if you get through the hard parts, you can reach a resolution. It might not be the resolution that you want, but it might be a resolution that is attainable. I mean, I think that the the key component of mediation is that everybody walks away a little unhappy, satisfied, but maybe a little unhappy. And I just I try to get creative. Or I try, you know, if it's if it's the claimants hung up on a number and the defense attorney's like, this is my absolute bottom. I try to get creative with ways that we can use that same money to maybe show them what it can buy, you know, show it, show them what it can buy them. Hey, what's your rent? What are your monthly expenses? How long is this going to get you before you can find a job? Something like that. Put it that way in a more practical way that they can see it versus just a number that's, you know, pulled out of thin air or, um, you know, who's going to pay the mediation costs in workers comp. If you're getting benefits, then you're going to continue to get benefits until the settlement agreement is signed and approved. And that, you know, takes a certain amount of time. So I always try to pull it, you know, you pull that in, you pull in the cost of the mediation. Now you've already, you know, now you've already, you're already potentially at like another couple thousand dollars value towards the case. Little things like that where I try to get creative about the way that I'm um, framing the money and what it means to them. Um, I try to do things like that. And then, you know, I always I always ask defense attorneys to really push their clients, too, especially when I think that maybe they've undervalued the claim. Um, especially with my experience as a defense attorney that I feel like I have a good handle on what a case value is. And sometimes if I think that they've been undercut, you know, I'll put pressure on them to ask for a little bit more money or, you know, frame it in a different way for their clients. I mean, sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. Look, it doesn't happen all the time. But I really try to be creative on both sides with what does that money represent to try to get them away from the number and more towards how is this going to impact you when you walk away? So I, I think that's a, a very good approach. I would say that for me, I, I'm probably notorious for not ever wanting to give up on a mediation because I, although we are not invested in either side, we do not represent either side. We are literally a neutral party, um, but I feel invested in the process and and I feel like I want to see the parties reach a resolution. And to that extent, I would say that if, if I have to know when to call it quits, 
it's going to be when one side is just incapable of moving anymore, despite, you know, two or three efforts to try to get that party to move. Because once one party isn't moving anymore, you know, it, it's I, I don't see it. I don't see it working out. Um, but I mean, I've had a lot of people start a mediation and the very first caucus, the first thing they've said to me is, OK, just so you know, we're not going to settle today. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. You're here. You're here. And you obviously took the effort to schedule a private mediation and to show up. You're not doing this for no reason at all. So just like I go in and I and I tell the claimant, look, they're here today. The other side is here today and and both attorneys are here. And so this is all we're going to do. We're going to focus on this case. So I have to sometimes remind defense the same thing. You're here and we're here to focus on this case today. And there have been times when, you know, the parties were literally a million dollars apart. And you really think we're not reaching a resolution today. Um, but that's when you start to get creative. That's when you start to think, OK, how close can I get them to the point where maybe I need to take the attorneys out of the room and have them talk to each other without their clients around so that they can talk turkey and find out what's really possible because the problem of course is that anytime you've got an attorney in a room with their client there's going to be a little bit of posturing that goes on right um and and sometimes they just need to exchange a little information in the hallway um but it's gonna it basically takes one side telling me i absolutely cannot move anymore i'm out i'm out of room i'm out of money i've made the phone call and that's usually when the case isn't appropriately reserved if the case is appropriately reserved it should settle. It should. It's settle. usually more of an emotional barrier to keeping it from getting settled that you really can break through as a good mediator by figuring out what the emotional barrier is. But if the exactly. if the case from a defense side is appropriately reserved, then it should settle. If it's if it's not going to settle that day, it should settle in the next day or so. And I and I always tell the parties, keep me posted. Um, right. I will check in with you in a day or two. And I have I have continued negotiations for parties even a week or two later uh, because I, I hate leaving it unresolved. So, yeah. Matt, why did you why did you get into mediations? Yeah. So um, I, I sort of. I, I got into mediation because people asked me if I was a mediator. That's the honest truth. <laughs> um, he I, looks like a guy. I'm 45. Um, which is not old or young. Uh, I think there's a perception out there that mediation and ADR in general is what you do at the end of your career, just to have something to do. And I strongly disagree with that. Uh, but the truth of the matter is lawyers started asking me and I figured this sounds really interesting. And I've always been, inter- you know, wa- I've always wanted to be a mediator. If folks are willing to hire me to do it, then why not go get trained and figure that out? And so that's what I did. So it's been off to the races ever since. Yeah, I, you know, not to sound cheesy about why I like mediation. I don't want to say I enjoy helping people because I know that it's just so cheesy and I don't want to say that. But I genuinely like the practice of mediation. Like I enjoy it. Um, And Arthi, like you were saying, like I feel so just invested in the case, even though I'm a neutral, I want it to settle so badly because I feel so good. I mean, Oprah was right when she said it's better (laughs) to give than to receive. Like it feels so good to help people settle a case. Like I said, I don't want to sound cheesy to be like, I feel like I'm making a difference. Um, but because yeah, but you are, you're a peacemaker and it, it feels really good to make peace. Totally. And I think that at least for me, that was what drew me to mediation. And that's been the biggest, the hardest thing for me about being a defense attorney or just lawyer, lawyering in general is that lawyers are, are win lose, right? Like you are working against other lawyers. You want to win. And that means somebody else has to lose. And that is obviously very adversarial. And part of me as a defense attorney, just 
it wasn't my nature to be so adversarial. And I think that's what drew me to being a mediator is that it felt more peaceful and it was more my nature. You know, I'm a lover, not a fighter by nature. It doesn't mean I can't be a bull on the defense side when I need to be and I will be. Mm-hmm. But my nature is to be a peacemaker. And that's what really drew me towards mediation. And I just genuinely like it. Like, I like the psychology behind it. And I it's a it's a great, great uh, environment to be in. It just even though it can be adversarial within the context of the mediation, I feel really good walking away from it. it like you were saying, Earthy, it feels good to settle. Um, I also really enjoy the component of it that requires a connection with people. And yeah. it sort of leads me to this question because it's it's something I've kind of changed my mind over the years about how, what I think. But I used to think, and one of the reasons why I started mediation is because I didn't see a lot of mediators that look like me. And I felt like there's going to be ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a party that says, you know what? Taylor's personality is going to connect so well with this claimant, whether you know, for for any reason about who I am and what I am and all those things. Um, Taylor's going to connect with that person. And that's what I need. I had another mediator who I really respect tell me one time, if you're a good mediator, it doesn't care. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what culture you are. It doesn't matter. You should be able to make the connection with that person. And I don't know what I think. I used to think for a long time it really did matter who you are. And I seek out certain mediators because I think they're going to connect with the claimant. In some cases. And then on the other side, I'm like, well, I kind of agree with what he said. If you're a good mediator, you'll find a way to connect. What do you guys think about that? I have the the ultimate lawyer answer to this, and that is it it depends. depends. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it absolutely depends. I, I believe there are some fantastic mediators out there that would be great for almost any case. But the fact of the matter is there's always going to be that one client who might be looking for a specific type of person, maybe a specific demographic um, to connect with. And, And they'll listen to that person more than they'll listen to somebody else. I mean, we I had a mediation years ago involving a claimant who she was a female, but Um, Her attorney basically told us she doesn't respect other women. She only sees men as authority figures. And so she was never going to listen to a female mediator, no matter how skilled that mediator was. We needed to have an older male, you know, mediator handle it because she would automatically see that person as an authority figure. And, you know, we were all in agreement, her attorney, as well as, you know, me when I was the defense attorney, that what mattered most was she needed to feel heard if we were going to have a shot at settling. So right. in, in her case, it absolutely mattered. We did get it done. It was a miracle of all miracles, but we got it done. Um, I don't think we would have had that same result with a woman, not because of the mediator, but because of the party. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard not to take some of that personally sometimes um, mm-hmm. with a lot of this. When we talk about impasse, when we talk about, you know, how mediation makes us feel as neutrals, which is valid. You have to remember that it's not about you. And sometimes impasse is on purpose. Sometimes I impasse my cases and I do that tactically. Um, I don't care what the offer is. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I remember you and Arthi, you, or me, Arthi, you and I having a conversation about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there, I've had, you know, people of all kinds of cultures hire me. And I think I called you to say why, like why, uh, you know, I'm big guy. I've got presence. You know, this is the South in America. Like people want to speak to somebody who they believe will have the authority to handle the issue that has come to them. And I never, ever thought about it like that. Um, and it really was eye opening to me. I think it made me feel a little more comfortable because I was so concerned about making sure that I understood the cultural norms, the cultural mores how someone in Korea or India or uh, Mexico negotiates 
And I think what I've learned is, you know, folks are there with an open mind and they're looking to you to provide that framework and guidance. And, and that's made me a lot more comfortable in my own skin as a neutral in situations outside of my own culture, if that makes sense. I, I think it makes total sense. I mean, we, we've had this conversation because there have been times when, you know, a, a, a party has told you, I really need a person of color mm-hmm. to be the mediator in this case. That's absolutely and, true. And, yep. You know, and, and we've had the opposite happen, too. So um, it, you're right. It's hard not to take it personally. Um, but then, you know, part of it is is remembering why I became a mediator in, in the first place, which Taylor alluded to it uh, so eloquently in saying that just it feels good to be a peacemaker. But um, I'm going to tie back to something we said on the last episode of the motherboard. I think it also has to do a lot with our communication style. Um Taylor and I both registered in as a blue brown. I don't know if you heard that episode, but the browns were very direct, but the blues are very empathetic. And I, I think that that is a really good recipe for being a mediator because you have to be able to listen and you have to be diplomatic, um, but you also have to deliver the news. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Sometimes it's ugly. And that, you know, I think that, like Taylor said, I'm agreeing with you again. If you're an extrovert or you have the type of personality where you just like working with people, but maybe you don't want to do so in a very confrontational way, this is a really great career path um, because we get to help people resolve the problem without having to be adversarial to them. I mean, sometimes we are struggling with them a little bit, especially if they're having a difficult time understanding a concept or they're not understanding why this is not enough money to settle the case or why this should be enough money to settle a case. And we have to be careful about not injecting our opinion too much in that, but at the same time, helping them understand what's a fair offer. Uh, I really think it it has to do with personality to some degree. 100% agree. Well, question question for you two. So. What do you think is the single most important attribute of a neutral? Wow. Um, I would say the single most important is the ability to connect. I just don't think you can settle a case without that personal connection. You've got to connect to the claimant. You've got to connect to the claimant's attorney. You've got to connect to the defense attorney. And you've got to do that sometimes in a way in front of the claimant without the claimant knowing. And that's a skill. And I think it takes, so that ability to connect in a flexible way is crucial. And I think it takes a rapport with the claimant's attorneys and the defense attorneys. One of the things that I realized very, very early on was how important my reputation was. And I think that that has benefited me as a mediator because I have made professional friendships with people on the other side and enough that I've gotten to know them well enough as people that I'm able to communicate with them maybe in front of their client without their client realizing the message. And I think that is the times that I've been like, wow, I, I I did a really good job at that has been with attorneys that I have that connection with because it, I mean, it's interpersonal skills. It's reading the room. It's knowing, you know, it's picking up on cues, verbal and nonverbal cues. You know, it's different with the defense attorney if they're the only person in the room and you can talk, you know, super transparently. But you might not be able to do that in the other room. And I just think being flexible in your communication style and knowing how to connect with people in different ways is totally for me. It's what I think makes me a good mediator and Arthi when you were saying about communication styles brown blue I feel like I wouldn't I would bet money that a lot of mediators are brown blue and we're only six percent of the population according to that book yeah so um I I, yeah go ahead Matt I think uh I think you can teach the area of the law I don't think you can teach someone to be a good neutral I really don't I, I think you either have it or you don't 
obviously within the context of having it or don't having it, uh, you, you can teach skills to help you with impasses, to help you with difficult situations, to help reframe issues, as you mentioned, Taylor. But I think it, at the core of it, you're either somebody people want to talk to and listen to or you're just not. Uh, that's that's really how I feel about it. And I feel like perhaps one of the most important attributes, it's, it's again, building on something Taylor said, um, is sincerity. I think that if if you're sincere about what you're doing, it shows. And I've certainly had mediators who looked like they didn't really care whether they were there or not. Um, and they were nothing but a glorified messenger between one room and the other. And I've, as the attorney, I'm sitting there going, well, I can get up and walk to the other room and say that. I don't need somebody else to do that for me. Um, so I think it matters that, that the mediator is there and they're sincerely interested and invested. You can see that they're invested in getting it done. And they're doing more than just being, you know, a messenger bird to the other side. You can see that they're actually working um, to build a consensus and and sometimes it might take one or two caucuses before you realize that. But at least as a mediator, I try I try to connect with the parties and make them see that, no, I'm sincere about being here. I want this to settle. So I'll I'll take whatever time you need, you know, to listen to you and to carry whatever you want me to you know carry to the other side. But I'm going to put an emphasis on we've got to try to get this somewhere. And and I find that I like hearing that from a mediator when I'm one of the parties. And so I try to convey that as a mediator. Yeah. Pe- people know when they're being bullshitted. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a that's a direct way of saying it. See, you're very brown. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now we can test on whether you guys have a bleep thing. That's OK. Do you have that's to use good. explicit now? Maybe we get some more, you know, listeners. It, it's really OK to say that. Uh-huh. It's all good. So um, question or or question two, what's one uh, practical tip you would give to another mediator when they need to get the lawyer out of the room so they can talk to them privately? And this is assuming non-COVID times. We're in person. We're in person and we need we and we need to do it in a subtle way so that the parties don't know. Yes. And I'll I'll tell you what my go to always is. Um. Oh, gosh. I, I've never actually had to do that without the do party it. understanding. Without so, the party. Um, one of the things that we take for granted is that we know the parties in comp. We know each other. Yeah. We generally know each other's hearts. Um, we've seen each other around. We know what the mediation is going to feel like before we get there. I handle employment. I handle personal injury. I don't know those lawyers. Uh, they don't know each other. They don't know me. And so it's very hard to build that rapport when you don't know, when some, know, know someone's style and all that stuff. But if I ever do need to get somebody out of the room, I ask them to help me make a cup of coffee or show me where the coffee maker is. And I've had <laughs> some people be like, what are you talking about? It's right out there. You walked right by it 10 minutes ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, that's a I good one. Or like, hey, can you show me? To, you know, and then I get them out of the hall and it's like, hey, man, look, here's the deal. You here's know? the deal. They've got 30 hours of footage of your guy dunking basketballs or whatever it is, right. you know, uh, playing golf or, you know, <laughs> working. Uh, take the offer. Take the <laughs> offer. So, That's anyway. a good one. I may, ha- I may have to uh, steal that one from you. Um, so, but I've, I've never had to separate an attorney from their client without their client knowing. Um, so I don't have to think about that. So, Matt. Um, tell us a little bit more about Jordan ADR. Give us a plug for your mediation practice. Tell the audience um, about what you know, what all areas of the law you guys um, have mediators available. And just give yourself a plug here. Thanks, Taylor. Yeah, so we have uh, at this point eight mediators who handle all manner of civil matters throughout Georgia. We love to travel. We're also happy to host you. We have offices in Atlanta. Athens, Cedartown, Buford, uh, Buckhead. Um, our, ne- our neutrals certainly have uh, a lot of expertise in the workers' comp arena. That's where I come from, and we've got several mediators who only focus on uh, workers' compensation matters, but we have several who focus only on personal injury matters and some that focus on a wide array of matters, including business and family and you know child custody and things like that. Uh, you know, our intent is to continue to grow as we see fit. Um, we're not looking to 
take over the ADR world tomorrow, but we feel like good organic growth makes sense. And I think that if I can toot our horn a little bit, I think we've done a really good job being intentional in the people that we bring into the panel. And we have a lot of fun together. These are people that I'm personally connected with and enjoy. And it just enriches what we do together. So um, that's who we are. And we're starting to transition to in-person mediations now. We've been doing virtual for a year. We were, um, I want to say we were uh, probably one of the first to immediately jump on the virtual mediation bandwagon and and make it a reality for our clients. And and fortunately, that has meant that mediations have been able to continue. Um, And we've had a lot of success with it. So for our clients that still want to um, conduct one virtually, we still offer that. But uh, for those who are ready to move back to in-person, we've got mediators ready to travel. That's the deal. Yep. Um, I'll be in Atlanta this week doing one. And, uh, you know, traveling as folks want and need. All right. Well, we've come to our final question, which is a pretty lighthearted one. Tell us, Matt, what is something that you are loving right now or something that you're hating right now? (laughs) Um, I was going to say my vaccine. Um, (laughs) We actually went to dinner for our anniversary at a restaurant last week. Um, Feels good, right? It's been a lot of transition for us personally right now. Uh, my wife and I buying a new house and, you know, working together on this business and on the law firm and, and such as that. So I'm really thankful for her right now. She's been really carrying me lately. Uh, and it's not easy for me to, to need that or accept that. Um, but she's really kind of been keeping us going um, as a family. And Wow, Matt, sounds like you forgot to get her an anniversary present. <laughs> <laughs> I, what makes you think I didn't get her a shout out on the motherboard? I mean, yeah, that's not going to cut it, buddy. <laughs> but it was lovely. It was lovely, but no, it was lovely. I think I think a wife shout out is always a good thing. I'm just giving you a hard time. I, I think um, it's well, on a lighter note, my favorite thing this week is alcohol related. So I think I mentioned this on another episode. Nine times out of ten, tequila is my drink of choice because everything else gives me a headache. So there's this brand out of Austin, Texas called Ranch Riders. And I have been noticing them for a while, but they make canned cocktails. So, you know, um, those seltzers were all the rage last summer, the white claw. claw. (laughs) I I cannot stand those drinks. I don't think they taste very good. But I do love a canned cocktail. And this company, Ranch Riders, it's out of Austin, Texas, and they just made it to Georgia. And I picked them up last weekend and brought them to the beach. So the two that I had were the ranch water, which is tequila, soda, and lime juice, and the Paloma, which is honestly one of the best drinks I've had. It was the grapefruit, tequila, and soda with lime juice. Like all natural ingredients, they're like 100 calories. And they are so good. They're called Ranch Riders. They have, I think, four different ones right now. But the Paloma is hands down the best. And it's just so great. Now I can, like, take a canned cocktail with me, you know, while my kids ride a bike, which was a terrible example. I was about to say. Really, I just mean, like, I don't have to make myself a margarita. I can just drink it out of a can. So good. I found that tower package for all you Georgia folks. A lot fewer brain freezes, too, I would imagine. Yeah, they're so just... Okay. change mine to Quip. Um, What's that? Quip. The toothbrush. You guys... Oh, I don't know that. Um, Quip. The mail-order toothbrush. Yeah. Never mind. What? No, I'll have to check it out. Tell I'm us what it's about. Ships. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what, a mail-order toothbrush? What, is it one of those bamboo toothbrushes? No, it's like an electric toothbrush, and it's a subscription service, and every couple of like weeks you get a new head for the toothbrush and a new battery, and it's Quip. How do you guys not know Quip? I don't know, but I'm going to have to check it out because I do like an electric toothbrush. Call out to Quip. It's like the dollar shave thing, right? Like, can't you get dollar razors or something like that? Well, I wouldn't know, uh, but yes. Yes. God. I will God. check that out. Thank you. 
I'm I'm I am truly curious about this canned mixed drink. Um, it sounds so divine to me pers- personally. <laughs> um, I used to really like that that wine Sophia, and they they made that in the cans as well. The Blanc de Blanc is available in the cans. Uh, well, my my favorite thing, as usual, I'm I'm picking something uh, sentimental, and because my favorite thing right now is a person. Um, my favorite person is my son's third grade teacher. So. This, we just wrapped up a school year. Um, parents around know that this has probably been one of the most insane years ever to be a student, to be a teacher, or to be the parent of a school-aged child. Um, and I really have to hand it to Miss Livia at, at Springmont. Um, my, my son goes to a Montessori school, so he's he's been in Miss Livia's class for three years because they have a mixed-age classroom. And... You know, aside from the fact that she just loves the stuffing out of him and she listens to him and she really feeds his brain every single day, she's really gone above and beyond this year. Um, Montessori is very hands-on with a lot of manipulative materials, and it was a tough call figuring out how to make that happen, especially when the first semester was distance learning. But Miss Livia and her assistant, um, they physically made a set of materials for every child to take home. And I know that that would have taken hours and hours and hours of time, um, but it made such a difference in how my son learned. And last day of school was last week. She cried, he cried, and we're all going to miss Miss Livia because she is absolutely hands down a rock star and our favorite person right now. Teachers so, deserve all the credit, that's for sure. Thank you to everybody who's a teacher. My mother is a teacher. She's retired. I have you have my eternal respect. Ranch riders and new toothbrushes to all teachers. Yeah, you know, who wouldn't want that? Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us um, today, tonight. We're filming at night, uh, recording at night. Uh, we really appreciate it. And tell everybody where they can find you. What's your website? So you can find us at jordanadr.com. Great. Taylor, what's your website? Deflaw.com. Okay, so if someone wants to book a mediation with you, they can, they can email go through that. At tponce, T-P-O-N-C-Z, at deflaw.com. They can message me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn. find me on the Drew Eckham Farnham website. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening, and we'll see you soon. Had fun, y'all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the motherboard. Thank you for listening to the motherboard. Thank you for listening to The Motherboard. Five returning mothers, never bored.